Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. Here we dive deep into the diverse worlds of regenerative living, permaculture, and natural building as we aspire to help you reach your highest potential for yourself, for your community, and for this beautiful planet that we share. As always, I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher, and I'm thrilled to guide you through this week's episode. So let's jump right in. Essentials, written by the world's leading sustainable builders, designers, and engineers, New Society Publishers' Sustainable Building Essentials series covers the full range of natural and green building techniques with a focus on sustainable materials and methods and code compliance. From rainwater harvesting to composting toilets to straw bale, rammed earth, hempcrete, and more, these unique books present the essential information on each topic. Find out more about the Sustainable Building Essentials series at newsociety.com. All right, welcome everyone to a special episode of the Abundant Edge podcast. Now, I haven't done a special episode in a long time. In fact, I haven't done any at all this season, and it's been a while since I've done a regenerative roundtable as well, since I've been transitioning from the farm where I lived with my colleagues in Guatemala until May of this year to where I am now which is a small town about a half an hour north of Barcelona in the beautiful Mediterranean region of Catalonia in Spain. Now, in the last few months, I backpacked up through southern Mexico. I spent a month visiting family in Spokane, Washington, and then another month visiting my brothers and nephew in Minnesota, where I mostly grew up. And I've been in Spain now just under two months, and I'm working with my partner here to start a whole bunch of new exciting projects, both online and in the community, which I'll be sure to talk about in future episodes once things start to get off the ground. So today I'm going to be giving a review of the previous series on natural building and regenerative living and design from the last handful of weeks for those of you who want just the cliff notes and the most important information from about a month and a half of episodes, almost two months now. I'll be talking about some of the main takeaways and the things that I learned from these interviews, as well as presenting some new questions to you out there listening, while sharing some thoughts and stories from some of my own experience as a builder and a traveler, and some things that have taught me a lot over the last decade. So let's jump right in. So I started this series on building with an interview with Chris Magwood the founder of the Endeavor Center in Ontario, Canada, and the author of many books that I've found to be essential resources for natural building, including Making Better Buildings, Essential Prefab Straw Bale Construction, Essential Hempcrete Construction, Essential Sustainable Home Design, and he's also collaborated on many others. This interview gave me a really good overview of a lot of different natural building materials, as well as how they compare to each other, their advantages and disadvantages, and the context and climates where they excel or are the wrong choice. Now, I chose this as the first episode not only for the broad overview and understanding that Chris brings, but also because his story is one that a lot of people interested in natural building, I think, can relate to. Chris started out like many of us just wanting to build his own home. He wanted to do something of high quality that wasn't too hard to learn to build and that didn't cause any unnecessary destruction to the planet in the process. And he found that there were few resources at the time for owner builders like him, and so he set out to compile the resources and knowledge that would make it easier for others to build sustainably in the future. Now, I was really looking forward to getting his take on some of the most important considerations when designing a building, 
because I know from experience that this is where a lot of future problems and expensive mistakes can be avoided if the design and planning are done correctly. Chris is also a great resource for ideas on how to work within tight code and building restrictions, and he's worked directly with government bodies in Canada and the U.S. to get many natural structures approved and permitted. Well, I think one thing that I've learned is to is to not see those codes necessarily as restrictions. You know, at, at the core, all codes are public safety documents, and uh, I learned a long time ago from a, a colleague, David Eisenberg, that, you know, really we want the exact same things from a building that a code official does. You know, we, yeah. we want to ensure that this building is safe for all the occupants. Um, we want to make sure that it's safe for a long time. We want to make sure that it can, you know, um, withstand whatever, you know, climatic conditions or ground conditions exist. So like we share all of those goals. And in fact, we have a whole bunch of other public health and safety goals that are complementary to that. You know, we want to not just make the building safe kind of structurally. We want to make sure that it's safe in terms of uh, indoor environment quality. We want to make sure it's in terms of it's not wrecking the whole rest of the planet in order to make, you know, a safe haven for a, for an occupant. So um we're not really at odds with, with the, the intent of the codes at all. Um, and I think even just approaching code officials in that way, where it's like, you know, instead of going in bristling and, and you know, ready for a fight, uh, we go in, you know, saying, hey, we want the same things you want. And this is how we're interpreting uh, your notion of safety and if you look at it, we're actually trying to do more what more of what you're trying to do than less of what you're trying to do. Um, and you know, so lots of the codes in their in their sort of preambles um, talk about the fact that they're not meant to restrict or limit people and what they want to do, um, but to just ensure that that those things are done are done safely. So. I think coming at it from that point of view is really helpful. We've gotten really good uh, here in Ontario. There's sort of a, a system for what's called alternative compliance. And so we've gotten really good at sort of writing alternative compliance packages where we, um, you know, find all the areas of the code where uh, a building official might have questions about what we're doing, find, you know, relevant test results from Canada and around the world that kind of show that, what we're doing meets the the minimum intent of the code and in fact sort of surpasses it in most cases. Um, but I think that the thing that we found, it's not really limiting, but the, the, the difficulty in working with alternatives and codes is just, you have to expect to take more time to prepare those documents. You have to expect to take more time to have the conversations at the building department to get the permit. Um, and you may be sort of taking on some additional costs if you need, you know, a structural engineer involved or an architect involved or a code consultant involved. So, you know, we've never not been able to do something that we've proposed to do. And we've done some things that I think people would think are pretty out there and alternative, but everything we've done, you know, has, has received, uh, approval from a building department here, but it's, you know, it hasn't always been a, 
the straightest, easiest path to make that happen. You know, sometimes we have to, to work at it. Now, I myself have mostly built in places with very lax or non-existent building regulations. And now that I've moved to Europe, I know that I'll have to deal with tighter oversight of building projects. And so getting these ideas and advice was one of the biggest takeaways that I got from this interview. Now, I know that many of you listening live in the US, Canada, Australia, England, or New Zealand, since that's where my biggest kind of listener bases are. And we'll also have to deal with regulations there too. But even for those of you who plan to move and start building in places without tight regulations, I think it's still important to look to certain building regulations to get an idea of the best practices and safety measures that are recommended, especially for first-time builder designers. A lot of the codes were written to prevent engineering mistakes, fire hazards, or damage from natural disasters. And as someone who has worked in both conventional construction and as a natural builder and designer, I promise you that most regulations and safety measures apply just as much to natural buildings as to industrial ones. The materials might be different, but you still want to make sure that your buildings are as well-made, safe, and healthy as possible, not only for the safety of the inhabitants and the longevity of the building, but in my experience, doing everything with natural materials and not relying on the process or the industrial process of getting materials that are kind of pre-made for you means you're going to be doing a ton of physical labor either by yourself or in small groups or in workshops or whatever it might be and you don't want to have to repeat that process because you overlooked some part of the design or engineering portion. I would say right off the bat size um, you know everybody tends to want to make the biggest building that they possibly can for the amount of money that they think they have um, and you know I, I've yet to see the building project where everything goes according to plan and according to budget. And so, you know, people want to kind of like start with their budget maxed out right from the, right from the design, you know, building as much building as they possibly can for the amount of money they have and then running out partway through. Right. So, right. you know, um, keeping, you know, keeping a, a, a sort of grip on size, I think is really important. And then from there, you know, really obvious things like passive solar design, um, which I think in, in our climate up here in Ontario, passive solar often gets sort of viewed through the lens of, of trying to maximize winter um, solar gain in the building, um, sometimes at the expense of summer shading, which is, yeah, yeah. especially with climate change, becoming more and more important. And, you know, in a lot of ways, because we have a, a, a cloudier um, winter climate here where you often don't have very much direct summer sunshine or winter sunshine to benefit from, uh, but you sure get a lot of summer sun. Uh, thinking about passive solar from the, from the shading point of view, um, I think is really important and, uh, and often gets overlooked. Yeah, so many areas now are using a ton more energy in the cooling process in the summertime than they do in the heating in the winter, partly because uh, you can heat a home with wood or other local resources fairly easily in a lot of places, whereas you can't burn wood to cool a house, obviously. And the infrastructure, especially in cities where you're having that sort of heat island effect for having paved over so many surfaces, not having much green space, is exacerbating the problem hugely. What are some of the things that you recommend for 
passive cooling techniques in a design? Well, mostly, you know, front on the south face of the building, making sure that um, whatever um, overhangs you have for your building, roof overhangs, will provide uh, adequate shading through the summer. Um, so that's sort of the, you know, the, the easy, low-hanging fruit part of things. Um, and this especially tends to get ignored on, on houses that are more than one story. So, you know, if you have an appropriate, say, 24-inch roof overhang, on a two-story building, that will do a great job of shading the second-story windows, but the main-story windows are, are still going to be exposed. So, you know, making sure that 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 all of those southern windows uh, have summer shading, and then really paying attention to the west side of buildings because it's pretty easy to design in a, a, an appropriate overhang on the south side of a building, but on the west, as the sun is sort of lower in the sky. Um, a typical roof overhang is not going to shade those windows, and because it's later in the day and the temperatures are already high, and the you know the the, the air temperature's gone up, uh, having that west sun sort of beating into your windows uh, is a huge cause of overheating. So you know, thinking about ways to either just minimize western windows, to use porches on that side of the building, or you know other kinds of of coverings on the windows, whether that's you know. Uh, vines or blinds or um, coatings directly on the glass, but you know, really trying to be conscious that that what western windows you have are definitely going to be uh, a, a pretty major source of overheating. Now, the second interview in this series was with my friend Trey Abernethy from Natural Building Costa Rica who is based at a gorgeous permaculture site in Costa Rica called Punta Mona, and who has worked in the building trades in the States for a long time. But a few years ago, transitioned to working primarily with bamboo after taking a building course with his mentor and co-teacher, Rodolfo Sainz. Now, though I've had other great conversations about bamboo building with my own friend and mentor, Charlie Rendell, in previous seasons, this interview was especially useful as a full overview of the whole process of bamboo from growing and harvesting the poles through treatment methods, joinery techniques, maintenance considerations, and design considerations. I can tell that Trey really knows his stuff, and one of the biggest takeaways for me was hearing about some of the materials and ways that Trey had found to preserve and extend the life of his bamboo and his bamboo buildings in turn. You know, when it's treated properly, and it's dried and cured properly, it really can and is a lifetime building product. And in Colombia, man, they have houses that are 150 or more years old that are multi-generational bamboo houses. Um, That's remarkable. And yeah, so like the traditional, some of the traditional methods of um, curing in, a bamboo in Colombia, they actually do not use borax or boric acid or, or anything is what they do is they actually cut the bamboo in the field, uh, leave it, you know, just leaning up into the existing bamboo clump and set the base on a piece of rock or a piece of wood and leave it for four to six weeks. And what happens is it dries and, and cures and has like a vinegar, vinegarization process where it uh, naturally dries out the sugars and, and whatnot. I, I don't know the, the whole science behind it, but I do know that, that it does work. Um, I have had a friend here in Costa Rica that has done that process with uh, the bamboo he's used to build his structures. And most of the structures on his farm are about 12 years old. 
there's no signs of insects or, or bam or you know uh, fungal issues so he just lets it dry naturally in the in the clump with the branches and the leaf still on it and uh, I think what it is is um, you know photosynthesis is still happening and for a while a little while after you cut it and so it's utilizing up a lot of the sugars and starches that are in the bamboo before it like fully dies so uh, that's kind of my theory on it so if that's um, been shown to work so effectively in the past, how come there's not more, uh, I guess, use of those methods in the more industrial or construction industries for bamboo? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. Um, you know, there are a lot of industrial uh, treatment processes that use a lot of harmful chemicals um, in Asia and, and in South America. Um, where they use, you know, all kinds of different things, sodium pentanate and like, uh, copper sulfate is, is, is one that's utilized a lot that, um, does, you know, is a harmful byproduct to, to put out into, into the environment. And I don't even know what they do with the, the spent solution and stuff, but probably not, you know, getting into waterways and things. Um, so that's why, like, I, I really, um, like borax and boric acid. It's a proven effective treatment solution. They've been, um, I think it was pioneered originally in Bali, uh, you know, maybe uh, in the 70s. And um, they've, been, they've been doing it there for, you know, decades. And that's, um, that's what they do with the Green School, and the, which is like a, a huge bamboo school that they built in Bali. And then they have a whole green village community that they've built around it. Um, that you know there's some five-story incredible houses there um and they're they're treating with borac and boric acid and it's you know it's a it's a proven proven treatment solution that it's effective and works and um you know it's pretty cheap you can you can buy a 50 kilo sack of it fairly cheap and um you know and and if it's done properly uh either by a, a dunk tank solution or uh, a butchery system you know it can really be a lifetime building product and, and a, a sustainable regenerative solution to, um, you know, cutting down hardwood trees to build with and, and utilizing, um, a lot of these, uh, other materials that have a high carbon footprint and, uh, a negative impact. I honestly wish I had taken the time to ask him a bit more about his joinery techniques that didn't use hole saws and metal connections, which is the way that I'm most familiar with and have used the most from when I was in Guatemala. But from what I understand, those methods and materials change a lot based on where they originate and where they're practiced. Bamboo is such a fascinating material to me, and there are so many different varieties as well. These days, I'm looking as much into the edible and ornamental garden types more than the construction-grade varietal because those types don't grow much in Spain, and I don't see any need to try and import them. So if any of you listening know much about edible bamboo shoots, not just for panda bears, but for people... Be sure to let me know, reach out if you get the chance. I'll also put links to other interviews on bamboo that I've done in the show notes for this episode for those of you who are looking for different perspectives from different people and experiences on this material. From there, the third interview in this series was a follow-up with a good friend of mine from back in the U.S., Kirk Donkey Mobert. Now, Donkey has always been my go-to guy for all things pyro. When it comes to fire, especially rocket stoves, heaters, and cooking systems, I usually go to check out the forums that he hosts on these topics with a whole bunch of other fire nerds like me 
who weigh in on designs and projects to test out all kinds of ways to save fuel and get cleaner burns and maximize heat efficiency with their experiments. In that interview, we caught up on a lot of the newer developments in rocket stove technology and configurations which I'm only just starting to become familiar with. We talked about bell rockets, batch box configurations, but most importantly, the materials that you can find or salvage in order to start experimenting and building with stoves for yourself. Now, Donkey is a master at turning salvage materials and mud into magic. One of my favorite parts from the conversation was when he took the time to describe some of the nifty add-ons that have been developed by the community to improve efficiency and functionality of the batch box burners. Uh, there's a little thing called a Peter channel, a P channel. Uh, it's a metal plate that you can build that goes against the, the front brick or the back brick, I guess, the brick away yep. from you. Agreed. Yeah, those can be super useful. And there's like that variation on the L configuration too that keeps the airflow underneath going as well. Yep, that's right. Yep, those are super useful. I would recommend if anybody's building those configurations to, to make the little extra effort and put that metal thing in there. Yeah, well, that, I mean, the metal thing avoids, um, it's, it's great for three things, really. I, I, choke. Yeah, did we talk about this in the last go? I don't think we covered the P channel. Okay, yeah, I don't really remember that we did. Um, it's worth uh, mentioning, though. Yeah, well, it's just a little metal plate, and it's, um, it's about 5% of the, of the cross-sectional area of the whole system. Um, and what it does is it create well, actually, no, let me rephrase that. It creates an air channel that's 5% of the cross-sectional area of the rest of the system. Yeah. Um, and uh, fresh air that then can be sort of injected in front downstream from where the wood is. Yep. Uh, and it keeps that first brick really uh, much cooler, so it's less likely to crack. Um, and it sort of prevents the, um, what you were talking about, wood from falling into that space and just completely choking the fire. Um, and it also creates a consistent, steady stream of cool air uh, and a, just downstream where you want it, really. Mm -hmm. yep. um, so it's, it's really good for organizing the fire. And it goes hand in hand with another thing called a tripwire. Now, this one I have been reading about. I've seen all the pictures and the instructions on the forums that you host, but I haven't had a chance to try it out myself. Can you explain it a little? Yeah. Uh, you may have experienced this with regular J-tube, you know, where you put the wood in and it'll do something that I call seeking, where the flame will run down the firebox really far. And you'll even see it sometimes pop out of the heat riser for a second. And then it'll run back again. And then it'll run out and run back. It'll sort of pulse. Right? You may have seen that pulsing. Mm. And every time the fire does that pulsing maneuver, when it returns, it'll puff a little puff of smoke. So if you were to check its efficiency curve while it's pulsing, you'll see high efficiency and then suddenly this low efficiency moment. And then back to high efficiency again and back to low efficiency, etc. Yeah. Often it's a sign that there's an airflow problem. But um, even when the air is going fine every, and everything's arranged just right, you can still see that flame sort of pulse in and out. Um, and quite often you'll see that flame running up the heat riser uh, and it'll be a little more disorganized. So what uh, um, a tripwire does is it's, 
it can be made a lot of different ways, but typically it's a brick with sort of an arrow shape cut into it. And the arrow shape has what we call a bluff body on it. Um, and this brick is placed at the very top of the horizontal burn chamber. So it's down. And this is closer towards the fuel source or closer towards the heat riser? It's kind of in the middle. I would say, you know, uh, most of my um, horizontal, most of my uh, burn tunnels are about four bricks deep. Okay. Okay, so I guess it's actually closer to the fuel source because it's the second brick typically. Gotcha, gotcha. And so visually looking at it, it's, it's like a slanted arrow pointing downstream of where yeah. the fire is going, right? Right, that's right. And it's a slanted arrow, so it makes a little bluff. It, it's like a little projection from the ceiling. Yep. Um, and that little projection creates turbulence. And so what that turbulence does is it mixes the fuel air better because, you know, the, the unburned fuel, the hot unburned fuel tends to rise to the top of that, of that tunnel. Uh, and so this um, little heat, uh, this little uh, tripwire will spin that stuff up really well. So you'll get a really good fuel-air mixture there. But what it also does is it creates sort of a flame holder. Um, are you familiar with the term flame holder? No, no. Catch me up to speed. Well, a lot of stoves, like propane stoves, any stove that burns a gas, right, um, they'll have something called a flame holder in it. And quite often it's just the, the aperture. It's just the holes in your, in your stovetop. Um, they create a turbulence and that turbulence is consistent. It stays in one spot so that when the gas comes up and mixes with air, the flame is always in one spot. Okay, um, so other, otherwise the flame will seep around. It'll, yeah, it'll, it'll be irregular. It'll seek around and it can put itself out like in a propane stove. Sure. Um, so this creates a flame holder inside the rocket stove itself in the burn tunnel so that then the flame stops seeking. It's always in a consistent spot. Um, and it has more time to burn itself completely and run the fire out. And quite often you won't even see flames in the heat riser at all. Mm. The fuel will be completely burned um, before it even gets to the riser. Gotcha. And so is this... Are, are any of these techniques something that can be integrated in with the batch box? Because all the configurations that I've seen are even simpler than what we've described here. Do you want yeah. to break it down from the beginning for the batch box? Batch boxes have all of those features in them. They just look a little different. Okay. So what a batch box is, 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 is a, as I said before, it's a much larger feed box. So you could stick in a whole batch of wood. It's like a, like a regular wood stove kind of. You put a front door on it, you open the door, you start your fire, you put the wood in, you close the door, and it burns about four times as much uh, at one given moment as, um, as a JT will. I also really liked his advice on how people at home can get started tinkering and experimenting. You know, find a safe place out in your yard or, or in a barn with good ventilation and get started. Yeah. You know, just get out there and do it, man. There's no impediment to just doing it. You and know? from my own experience, like the worst case scenario, it's a lot of fun playing with fire. I mean, maybe that's not the worst case scenario, but assuming you're being safe, it's just a lot of fun to play around with Absolutely. how to manipulate these uh, really base kind of physics um, of, of how heat thermodynamics and stuff work with Absolutely. really minimal materials like this is something you could just 
uh, I think in our courses, we were throwing these up with a bit of mud and some clay bricks and cheap clay bricks in probably a matter of 20 minutes. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I mean, yeah, that's about right. I mean, really what we have at a rocket stove is it's a Fox stove above ground. Yeah. Right. So go back to the history of it. Look at Fox stoves, build one, look at, um, you know, uh, look at the old tin can stove, build a couple, you know, as a test, you can just use metal stovepipe and cobble, fabric cobble some garbage together and get a cool stove that will not last. Yeah. But it's fun, right? And you can you can iterate changes really quickly with something like that. Exactly. That's where you get to really experiment around and try new stuff. Absolutely. Try new stuff. Yeah. And, and of course, go and look at the things that other people have done on the forums and, and all of that stuff. But don't be afraid to try things that other people think are dumb. Mm. You know, like I can only screw up so many ways. I can only think of so many ways to screw up. Yeah. And I've done my best learning by screwing up. So, sure. you know, everybody <laughs> find a way to screw up in a way that nobody else has figured out how to do. Because that's going to teach you something about building a better stove next time. Yeah. For right. Sure. And of course, make it safe for yourself, your family, your neighbors. Do your best to be safe. But don't be afraid of experimenting. And doing, you know, quote unquote, dumb things. Yeah. You know, because that's how we all got started. We were told this wasn't possible. We were told we were doing stupid things. Oh, those hippies over there, they're going to kill themselves. Well, you know, not yet. <laughs> and we did some great things. <laughs> that's that's not really the best gotcha I've heard. <laughs> we haven't killed ourselves yet, but... <laughs> <laughs> I'm totally in this camp, so I'm in favor of it. Right? No, not, you know, that, the point being is that we've created something really cool that, that people said that couldn't be done, um, and, and we did it because we were willing to do dumb things. Donkey's attitude towards innovation as a collaborative effort and the work of passionate amateurs like us, for example, always leaves me feeling like I can contribute to the advancement of things like this even without formal training, and I hope that's how a lot of you end up feeling as a result of this series in general. You can start small, but know that with time you can really make everything you need with the resources around you. After all, that's what all of our ancestors did for thousands of years. So after speaking with Donkey, I took a different direction and reached out to Mark Lakeman a longtime hero of design for me, who I'd spoken to along with Riddy DeCruz in a previous interview on community design and public space. And this time around, we talked about the architecture of healthy communities and how the infrastructure that we live our lives in could be reimagined to facilitate community and intimacy. Mark has a lot of insights on these topics, and I've watched talks of his, including a great TED Talk, many times when wrestling with bigger design concepts. In that session, we talked about the damaging effects of the colonial infrastructure and community design that so many of us in the West and in former colonized countries live in. But more than just pointing out the bad, Mark also offered a lot of insights from his years working at the community level with projects like City Repair in Portland, Oregon, and Dignity Village, a community for the homeless. I was in Denver, I was in Boulder um, a couple years ago and working with homeless people there and doing some 
design charrettes for, for houseless villages, tiny home villages. This is a project I've been working on since 1999, so 20 years into this, really working hard on on replicating. So you, you used the word dignity. Um, our first village was named Dignity Village, and it's still going strong and uh, has been providing assistance to communities all over the country to um, be able to create similar prototypes. So it's it's very exciting. But when I was in Denver, um, I heard from a homeless person speaking at an event that uh, Einstein's, Albert Einstein's granddaughter is a homeless person living in Denver. And, uh, you know, you hear something like that and it's like, okay, you know, how much more convincing do people need to understand that um, this is really an economic issue or you know, it's, 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 it's very complex. It's very complex. Um, but I think it's, it's too easy for people to continue to do this same stuff about marginalizing people based on their projections that people are too lazy or they just don't want to work or, you know, what are they have a mental health problem in the case of Einstein's granddaughter, probably she's wandering around sitting there having epiphanies about, you know, the relationship of light and space. And uh, she can't be bothered to get a job at 7-Eleven because she's, you know, too busy counting stars or something. Seriously, when, in my work over these last 20 years, I have met so many brilliant people who probably would not be living in the streets if they lived in a society that would embrace them for their qualities and their, their talents. Um, I've also met people who, who won't suffer the indignity of trading their time for money um, because life is too interesting. So I've met people who are intensely artistic and uh, they live outside. I'm just going to give you a bunch of different thoughts. I mean, Oregon Public Broadcasting, National Public Radio, ran a series a couple of years ago on the um, surprising percentage of people who have nomadic ancestry that live out in the streets. When I heard this series, <clears throat> I was thinking about the um, that story in the Bible, which is basically just this allegory about the conflict between, well, the rise of the city-state and, and colonialism and its its hostility toward all things local, all, all local cultures. So, you know, Cain, whose name basically means city-state, kills his brother, who's, you know, Abel, whose name basically means nomad. What we have is this hostility um, toward the ephemeral toward, toward alternative forms of culture and colonialism basically needs everyone to be nailed down to ground to pay for their space, to fund the society. And we've basically outlawed an entire paradigm, uh, a way of being. A lot of people out in the streets apparently have a proclivity for being nomadic. And we're telling them that they have nowhere. There's no ground for them to sleep in the world simply because we've decided to outlaw the very phenomena of being nomadic. This is so profoundly unjust, so profoundly ignorant and criminal. And it's just one, one aspect of homelessness, just one dimension of the conversation. There's another sure. thought on my it's mind. As complex as each individual. Truly, truly. Who knows why Einstein's grandmother, granddaughter would be homeless? Who knows what's happened in, in her life to make this happen? Uh, and, and, you know, as I've been working on this and meeting people personally, it goes from being a, like a conceptual project where I'm doing it for different reasons, like 
gosh, all of these houseless villages are prototype for carbon reduction, how exciting. You know, for me as a, as a design nerd, one of the biggest motivations is like, I get to just relish the, re, you know, this experience of regenerating urban form over and over again and witnessing the playing out of settlement patterns, which is one of the most, like people think that, you know, when they think about design, they think about forms and objects and products and architecture. The ultimate design is to witness people collaborating together to create urban form, to create settlement patterns that like evidence how they move in space and how they relate to each other, how they respond to climate and light, to wind and rain, and then alchemize the material around them into a habitat where they find shelter. That's the ultimate gig for, for human design. And, uh, you know, that's what we mean by permaculture, of course, um, but we rarely think of it in terms of urban form because permaculturists mostly focus, you know, on domestic systems and planting guilds and things like that. But it, it applies to all scales. I don't know, thinking about homelessness, um, I'm, I'm learning constantly. Like the other day, uh, there was an article released um, in, on the Internet. Uh, there was a study done, I think, in Portland um, that... For every $100 average increase in rent across the city, the homelessness increases by 15%. That is not you No, it isn't. Like, that tells us. When I, and here's another thing related to that. When I was in Oakland a couple of years ago, doing a workshop on colonialism and, and uh, gentrification, I learned from one of the participants and economists that um, the more that we allow this is, this is like, this is something to really, really take, take, take into consideration and give a lot of thought to. The more we allow the economic disparity to grow, the more that we have people amassing wealth whose only interest in wealth is more wealth. And wealthy people tend to keep so much of it available, just so much of it available for them to be able to use that's fluid. For the most part, they bank it in investments. Investments most often take the form of some kind of real estate development. So if you have all of this cash out there that needs to be invested in order to make more money, it causes the acceleration of gentrification because you're basically building all these market rate housing units in order to provide an increasing return mm -hmm. on investment. So the more we allow the, 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 the disparity to grow, the faster gentrification accelerates. And all of that, of course, contributes tremendously to homelessness. We have a madness going on right now. I think one of the antidotes is for people to realize um, the people in the streets all around them are maybe one or two degrees removed from them in terms of relationships. I have actually experienced that. I, I've actually met people that are the children of like my father's and mother's own friends, people that I went to school with, but that then I meet who are out in the streets. And I learned something, you know, that happened to them in the course of their lives that I was close to myself and I didn't realize what had happened to them. I've seen people run into each other in a car and get mad at each other and in my own neighborhood and start to fight only to be pulled apart by their wives saying things like, don't you realize like who you are? You guys used to be friends in school, you know, but they're so 
they're so far from remembering each other because of isolation or lack of continuity in their lives that they don't even realize that that they just finally had a chance to meet their old friend. Unfortunately, it took a car accident to do it. I'm going on and on about paradox here, but um, I think fundamentally for us to look at other people out in the street and just call them mere homeless people and treat them as if they're invisible pariahs or something is a terrible, terrible um, state of mind for, for us all. It's not just terrible for the homeless people. Like, for us to walk around in such ignorance, being oblivious to our fundamental connection to other people around us and all that we share. So I swear, even if they're homeless and you've got a home, you're still cultural refugees. Like the fact that you're even alive in the 21st century is a testament to your resilience that you've survived human, you know, through all of these convolutions of human history. I would rather walk around appreciating the fact that we're still here than projecting onto each other and saying, oh, you're of a lesser class because you have less than me. That's, uh, that's like playing life as if it's a Monopoly board game or something. Mark's philosophy on design and how it should be leveraged as well as his concepts and thinking around healthy community dynamics is something that I would encourage anyone to look into further. If for no other reason than to envision a future and a lifestyle in which your surroundings don't cause you to feel so lonely and separated. You know, you ask me what keeps me going. Part of it is outrage. Like I see that we're, every one of us, including rich people, are swept up in something so big we no longer understand it. And it's so, pain, so painful to us, maybe especially rich people, because they end up being impoverished spiritually. Um, that it's beyond comprehension and it's tragedy is beyond our, our ability to, to grasp. So there's that. I'm motivated by that. And on the other hand, on the other side of the tragedy, and this is something that this same Mayan person said to me, he held up his hand. He's like, this side of my palm is everything that's wrong that obscures us from seeing what's on the other side of my palm. And he turns his hand around. He's like, on this side is to see the luminous reality that we are on a floating garden sphere. The only life that we know of in all the cosmos is here. This is home. We are home. We are all home together. And if we can see that everything is here and that everything that we need is provided for to us as a gift and an expression of love, if we can see that we are all leaves on the tree of life and somehow act from a place of seeing our larger self with each other, then we will be okay and we will thrive. And to like glimpse, you know, the possibility of actually inhabiting that awareness and taking care of each other and going to new levels of aesthetic appreciation and experience with each other. Like that, Oliver, that's what's keeping me going, is to see what's on the other side of all of this despair is all of this, um, like, promise, birthright. That, uh, that inspires me constantly. All the way till I'm dust, I'll be inspired by that. Because I already know that stuff. Like, oh my God, we live in the most amazing place. That gets me up every morning. Even the tragedy. That's the thing. Like, we go to Mars sifting through dust looking for one organic molecule. You know, and then we come back here and we're like, you know, all around us, we're surrounded by evidence of the miraculous. And I feel that pretty much every day. It's, it's, it would be a hell of a lot better if billions of us were seeing that together because that cumulative celebration would be the best thing we ever experienced.
topic that I've wanted to focus on for a while is that of the potential combinations of industrial and natural buildings. This series wouldn't be complete without a look at how our crumbling and outdated infrastructure might be updated in a more ecological way. I also firmly believe that making the most of our existing buildings and remodeling and renovating them rather than just demolishing them and starting from scratch is a much more responsible ecological decision even if the building you replace it with is natural. I got to explore this topic with April McGill, who I had previously interviewed on the subject of rammed earth. She's also the owner and operator of the natural building and design architectural firm called Root Down Designs. This time around, we started by talking about hempcrete and how she's been experimenting with this relatively new material, as well as its potential uses in home renovations, especially in thermal efficiency advantages for humid regions. Hempcrete um, was established in Europe. Um, I believe a couple decades ago, and um, it's just a method of taking the hemp fiber and um, combining it with a lime slurry, and you're making a lightweight insulation that gets packed in between formwork, and so it can be integrated with stud framing or Timber framing, um, it really works hand-in-hand with conventional framing methods. Um, But essentially, it's a a lightweight um, insulation that is breathable, um, vapor-permeable, rot-proof, mold-proof, termite-proof, and fire-resistant. And then it's also... um, it's a carbon sequester in that the hemp fiber itself, as it grows, is sequestering carbon from the atmosphere and storing that in its fiber. And then um, lime also, as it continues to cure over the course of many, many, many years, continues to suck carbon from the atmosphere. So we see um, hempcrete as, um, as a carbon negative material, Uh, for its ability to continue to suck carbon out of the atmosphere. Um, It's also being produced with a rapidly renewable resource, no toxins, no VOCs. Um, And one of the biggest um, pros that I see for especially my climate region where it's so wet is its ability to handle moisture. Um, I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but... um, I know that it has the ability to take on an incredible amount of moisture and store it in its walls without um, failing or developing mold or mildews. Um, And so I think that's a really, really strong quality um, for my region. And as far as the limitations go, I would say um, at this point we're still – Um, sourcing of the hemp fiber itself is still a bit challenging. Um, You can order from Canada um, where it's being grown more abundantly. Um, The United States is on the up and up with um, hemp production, but most people, most of the farmers growing hemp are growing for seed, um, for the CBD oils and whatnot. And there's only a few... um, operations growing the fiber so there is um 
there are a couple of operations, but the resources are still a bit limited. Um, and then also, as with many of our alternative methods, um, having people who can build with that material. So having qualified builders remains to be one of the big um, challenges that we face, I think, with all of these methods is building up our supply of um, qualified people who can, who understand the method and who can build with it. We went on from there to talk about the technical and practical details about hempcrete, which left me with a much better understanding of this natural building material that I haven't yet worked with. My favorite part in the end, though, was hearing April's insights on how to improve the indoor air quality of a home. Many people incorrectly think that the pollution in the air outside is worse than inside, especially if they live near highways or in cities. But in fact, the opposite is true. We have some colleagues that we're working with that are in the um, the green product um, world. So they are the experts on products and materials and so we go to them um, to help us specify the right things for our interiors Um, and I mean everything from joint compound on your drywall to the drywall itself making sure your drywall doesn't have formaldehydes um, to your you know the sealer that's going on your floor um, looking at you know, flooring itself, um, you know, staying away from a lot of your composites, things that have a lot of glues in it are going to be more toxic. You're going to have more of those harmful VOCs and the red list chemicals. Unfortunately, the more um, inexpensive materials are the ones that are also full of toxic stuff, as you can, I'm sure, imagine. Um, And I think it just, it really just starts with education and awareness. I mean, we had to educate ourselves first. Um, and so what, what we've done, what we're doing and in the process of doing is putting together um, interior design packages that are healthy home interior packages. So we're getting to where we are um, able to put together a comprehensive list of materials, everything from your flooring you know, floors to your ceilings, um, to your plumbing fixtures of um, materials that do not contain any red list chemicals or any of the known harmful VOCs. Um, so it is, um, it's a big task, but that is, that's what our focus is on. And we're really trying to create spaces for people that, um, that will result in good indoor air quality. The more research I do about the dangers of industrial chemicals and the building materials that are involved, the more motivated I am to create healthy living spaces and to educate others on the toxicity of industrial homes. Like so many other things in life, the cheapest options are often the most expensive in the long run. A plastic or polymer-based sealant or a composite material in your home might last a long time and be cheap when you buy it. But if it means that you'll be paying a hefty medical bill or even losing your quality of life over time, was it really all that cheap? We covered some really good topics in this chat, and I really recommend it, especially to people who suffer from respiratory issues.
from there, the interview that I did with Daniel Allen was one that I've been on the fence about for a long time, since Daniel came to talk about a product called Aircrete, which is a cement-based material. Now, I was hesitant for a long time to include an episode on a cement-based material because I strongly believe that natural, minimally processed, and local materials can be leveraged as the main materials for any reasonable building project. In the end, though, I saw this as a good opportunity to have a larger discussion about what we consider to be natural materials and where the line in material choice for natural buildings and environmentally responsible construction is. Daniel actually comes from a natural building background himself and has worked and built with all the main materials that we'd otherwise consider in this category. I was really happy with the result of this conversation because not only did Daniel have great insights on how to look at different building materials from an ecological perspective, but we also got to talk a lot about what a regenerative lifestyle means aside from the building itself. It's the very lifestyles that we live and the value that we place on things that I think may be the core issue. For example, um, I could go out on my property and just using the small trees and sticks and limbs, I could build a double-walled wattle and daub house. Um, maybe I put a liner in the bottom for waterproofing and then I fill it with uh, straw to give me an R32 insulating house that's built you know, 99% free from local on-site materials. But the way society is structured, it's so much more, quote, valuable to use my time to just go buy a truckload of clay and a truckload of sand and, and some timber and a saw, cut it up, and then assemble an artificial structure out of natural materials. And sure. Yeah, so, you know, there's always that struggle with their – um, cause like you said, you can make an alternative building. It can be as industrial and more costly, uh, and more harmful even than buying something from uh, a larger source. So, you know, it's kind of like that permaculture saying it depends, right? In relation to the interview with Daniel, one of the best bits of feedback that I've gotten in a while came in the response to this episode in a comment by Wendy Howard, in which she writes, How can a resource be a problem? It is what it is. Surely it's only and ever our use and management of that resource that causes problems. It's our rate of resource use well in excess of what's appropriate to live a good and happy life as part of this planet and well in excess of what can be replaced by natural processes that's causing problems. If we were using lime instead of cement, trees instead of steel, we would still be seeing no less ecosystem destruction. We have completely lost our way. Our rate of consumption is, in all senses of the phrase, out of order, fueled by an arrogant delusion that nature exists only for us to exploit, besotted with our cleverness and ability to make stuff, driven by the insane desire to amass as many small green pieces of paper as possible. We completely fail to see the extent of our utter stupidity and the gross negligence of our responsibility to the living system on which all life on earth depends. We even have the arrogance to think we know better than nature all the while surrounded by the glaring evidence that we've barely even begun to understand it. So my definition of regenerative living is to live humbly within limits, sitting at the feet of nature every day to learn how best to take care of earth and restore it to health. It's not so much about what we do it with, it's how we do it. We once made our tools to last generations instead of six months, and repaired them when they broke instead of throwing them away built homes with love and care to pass down to our grandchildren instead of how much money we could trade them in for. 
It's the thinking behind how we live that matters. We need to find our way back to living in harmony with the earth. So thank you, Wendy, for writing that in. I waited until now to respond to that comment, which I think is a very important reminder throughout this whole process of deciding the most responsible way to live. While it's easy to get caught up in the details of materials and design considerations, if we lose sight of living within the capacity for life and the resources that we have around us, we can get swept up in the prevailing cultural narrative that only values growth, expansion, profits, extraction, and domination of our surroundings as a natural association that propels them. I also really agree that it doesn't matter what materials that we choose if we use them in a destructive and an exploitative way, even mud buildings can be over-extracted from the, from the land and done in a destructive way that's not respectful to the life-carrying capacity of that region. I also agree to a point that regenerative living is to live humbly within the carrying capacity of our place and ecosystem, but to me the important distinction between this definition, which sounds to me a lot like sustainability, is to use the ingenuity and surplus of energy that hopefully we find to then work towards increasing the capacity of all forms of life within those same parameters. To me, that's the distinction between sustainable and regenerative living, and that's why I really try and separate the two. I'm convinced that merely trying to get by with less and minimize our destruction to the point where we can limp forward with a broken cultural narrative for longer than we currently have is an exercise in futility, and that though natural building is only one step in a multifaceted look at regenerative living, it can help us ask questions that change the lens and the narrative that we look at our potential future with. I want to continue to challenge myself to ask, how can the way that I live create abundance and resilience for all life around me, rather than how can the way that I live cause less destruction and consumption? Though that's a very valid concern and aspiration, I think it leads to a complete dead end. Literally, if your entire goal in life is to stop consuming and stop destroying things in your need to survive, the only logical end to that line of thinking is to end your life. Consumption obviously is a necessary part of a healthy life. You have to consume in order to go, to go forward. It's what propels us and it's what propels all other forms of life. However, at, this, at the end of this episode, I'll address some of the other questions that come out of this too. So after wrestling with the limits of acceptable materials for natural buildings, I wanted to tackle another area of building and our lifestyles that needs drastic solutions, and that's the topic of energy. So many of us feel disconnected from our energy sources or view them as necessary evils of modern living. I've always wanted to know more about what options are out there for renewable energy production on the home scale, so I reached out to Dan Chiris, an expert and prolific author of the books such as Solar Electricity Basics, Power from the Wind, Power from the Sun, Solar Home Heating Basics, The Homeowner's Guide to Renewable Energy, Green Transportation Basics, and many more. This ended up being a very useful interview, and I learned a ton personally from the way that Dan summarized the array of options out there around solar and wind especially, but we also addressed some of the lesser known options like microhydro. We talked prices, sizing systems, output potential of different regions, and a lot more. And I left feeling like I had a much better grasp of a very broad topic, especially on some of the key bits of information that everyone should know 
way before worrying about the details and prices that can scare non-DIY savvy people early on. How much energy do you use? Where can we cut back? Let's do that. Now let's think about the solar system or a wind system. Now, and the, the next level of thinking is, do I want grid tied, off grid, or grid tied with battery backup? And then, then you have to just select the system that's going to work for you. Are you in a good wind site? Are you in just a good solar site? Um, do you need solar electricity and hot water? Now, that's the thinking process, really, is it, how, do we, how, how can we be more efficient? What kind of system do I want? Do I want to be off the grid or do I want to have that backup power or do I just not care? You know, are, are um, uh, grid interruptions so rare that it doesn't make sense for me to go off? And, and then, then you have to carefully select what system, what, whether you want solar electric or wind electric or um, uh, micro hydro. But don't forget hot water. Don't forget space heating. I mean, that's, that's pretty, we pretty much covered it. And if you start looking for installers, find someone who's been in the business for a while. Um, it just makes sense to go with people that have been doing it for a, for a goodly amount of time. They, they have the most experience. They know what they're doing. So look, when you, when you shop around, I hate to say this to all the newbies in the field, but you know, just look for people who've been in the business for a while and, and, and maybe five or 10 years and look at how many systems they've installed, uh, what, uh, what kind of reputation they have. It's really good to check out in advance, call some of their customers and how were they? Did they get the work done quickly? Did they do a good job? You know, were they clean? You know, did they clean up the work site? If you had a problem, were they there the next day or the, you know, two days later, not two months later? And, you know, that's the sort of thing you need to look in, into as well. The best part about this interview to me is that it applies to any kind of building, natural or industrial. Energy use, consumption, and the source of energy are things that everyone can work to improve. Where it applies to new and natural buildings, though, is in the design phase before any building actually starts. Now, we tend to get, we tend to get stuck on on electricity but there are a lot of other there are other ways to use renewable energy for example um, I have always heated my homes with passive solar and this is one of the things I always tell people is passive solar is basically you're designing your house and orienting your house so that it will absorb it, it, that low angled winter sun when, during the period that you need it the most, when you need heat the most. And so you basically build a home um, so that it's oriented in such a way, and you build it so the windows on the south side, there are more windows on the south side, and what they do is they capture that low-angled winter sun and provide heat throughout the winter for free. It's really a highly overlooked technology, extremely cost-effective. I, I always joke that it's such an important free source of energy that there ought to be a national law requiring every home builder to install some kind of passive solar. Now, I'm not proposing that. I don't, I don't want anybody to call me up and call me a socialist. But the, the fact of the matter is it's, it's just free heating for life. And if you could, every house that was built in this country could just include 25%. That's a significant impact 
that would have a significant impact on the amount of energy we use to heat our homes. And what's really cool about passive solar, this idea of just capturing that low-angled winter sun through south-facing windows, is everything you do to incorporate passive solar heating will actually help your home stay cooler in the summer. Now, I don't have time to go into all that. You can find that in my books. But so, you, so you're getting more bang for your buck. You're getting a warmer home. Home is going to be naturally warmer in the winter and naturally cooler in the summer. So you're going to save on heating and cooling costs at very little additional expense, very, very little additional expense. So that's something that people really ought to consider if they're looking at building a retirement home or just starting their very first home. Look into the passive solar heating and cooling and, and design that home so you get anywhere from 50 to 80% of your heating and cooling for free. It's a pretty phenomenal bargain for just a little bit of, uh, of intelligent design. So this turned out to be a really good condensed resource to get anyone caught up on renewable energy, especially at small scales. Next, I had an interview that I had been looking forward to a long time and that many of you listeners had requested as well. I've been watching, as many of you have, the videos that Benito Steen has been putting together with his brother on their YouTube channel called The Nito Project, since they first launched just a short while ago. Even before then, I've seen ads and posts for Benito's plastering workshops in places like Rancho Mastatal, and have often thought about how great it is that these skills and aesthetic techniques are being revived by a whole new generation. So when I finally got to chat with Benito, we ended up covering a whole lot of ground. One of the fascinating things about Benito's perspective is that he's the only person I know who actually grew up in modern natural buildings. His parents, Bill and Athena Steen, are well-known experts and educators on traditional building methods of the American Southwest and authors and advocates for straw bale building around the world. We ended up talking about his insights on growing up in that environment and learning natural building from a young age. It's much easier to like learn some of those things like plastering when you're that young because it's more like plastering is much more like a language um, where it it's it's not it's not um it's not as theoretical um of a skill it's just more the feeling and like that action and i think uh i think it's 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 been a lot to me trying to teach people like thinking about how to try to get people back to that like child place and not be so conscious in their in their movements but actually being more aware we also shared a lot of stories and chatted about teaching around the world and the cultural differences around building that we've seen the interview ended up being more of a chat than a question and answer format but i also learned a lot from his experience in other trades and experimentation in new projects I get a lot of joy out of connecting with others who've traveled around a lot to learn these trades and hearing what they've learned in the process, not just technically, but through differences in experiences and the more human aspects as well. Now, one of my favorite recurring guests on this show is Atulia Bingham. Not only does she have an amazing personal story of living off grid in an earthen home that she built for herself in Turkey, before hitting the road to travel Europe in her camper van and then resettling in northern Spain, where she's now restoring an old stone building with natural materials. 
She also manages to write books, a great blog on mud building, and release online courses. Her latest course is all about lime, one of my favorite earth materials and one of the most versatile for all kinds of applications. But I wanted to know first why someone would choose lime over cement. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the perfect question. The question I love to answer. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. Why would you use yeah. <laughs> but why would you you use lime instead of pork? <laughs> Um, well, there's so many reasons. There's so, so many reasons. Uh, let's start with the environmental. Portland Cement is the second biggest um, contributor to the greenhouse effect right now, uh, only, for, only beaten by fossil fuels. So the less Portland Cement we can be using, obviously the better. But people always ask me, isn't lime just as bad? No, it's not. Um, it takes about 25% of the carbon to produce lime than Portland cement and lime over its lifespan reabsorbs that carbon back into itself. It takes a long time to do that. We should be honest, but it's slowly, slowly reabsorbing the carbon <clears throat> as, it, uh, as it cures and it cures and, in, and becomes harder and harder indefinitely which is why because people will often say this but the romans used cement no they used lime crete <laughs> um, it was cement made with lime it was not portland cement which we're using today portland cement has a lifespan of about 50 to 70 years so unless it's very well reinforced with rebar um, or steel or something it's not going to hold for uh, much past 75 years and you can see that in old buildings where um, it starts crumbling away but um, lime doesn't do that at all lime continually becomes more and more enduring as it as it cures over time so it gets harder and harder and harder and that's why we still see those Roman viaducts and aqueducts and Roman buildings all together that were mortared mostly with um, limecrete and um, yeah so that's one difference between Portland cement and lime. Another difference is the situation with damp. Um, as I mentioned before, lime is brilliant in the wet. It, it has a drying effect um, it continue, because it's reabsorbing <coughs> moisture from the air. It absorbs it. Sorry, not reabsorbing. It's absorbing moisture from the air all the time to cure. It loves the wet, actually, and it, wants, it just loves to eat water. Whereas Portland cement, Portland cement will actually hold on to the water and create a very damp feeling in the house. It actually wicks up water. And, and because it's not breathable, like lime is breathable. And so Portland cement will just create this airtight, wet box. And that's why Portland cement always feels cold when you touch it. because It's actually slightly damp. And it's always too hot in the summer in, the, in hot climates. It's actually a very... Well, it's a poor building material, and I'm sorry that people, it's so widespread because um, either mud or lime are far superior in different uh, jobs, of course, but both of those two materials are far superior to Portland cement, unless, of course, you're building um, a massive flyover or a multi-story car park. But um, if you're normal for a house, I wouldn't use it in my house, Portland cement, personally, for that reason. Another reason is the mold factor. Um, you don't get mold with lime, as I've just pointed out. And um, there's a one part of my 
in my kitchen it's very interesting because I've, I've used lime paint as well on the stone walls and there's one part where I painted with a chalk paint instead of a um instead of lime it because it was wood I was painting something with wood and that particular part got covered in mold very interesting and nowhere else is nothing that was covered in the lime has any mold on it it's a fungicide um, mold cannot survive on lime we ended up covering so much in this interview from different types of lime that you can buy it or make yourself all the different ways that it can be used and even application techniques and troubleshooting but I especially liked her insights on how to color or add pigment to lime because that's one of the things that I've struggled with a lot in the past yeah, but um, to be honest, dyes don't work very well. Uh, and the problem with lime is it bleaches, so it becomes mm -hmm. much, much lighter. Uh, and uh, it's quite tricky to get a, a deep, dark finish like you can with clay. That's, that's also one of the reasons I used clay on one of my walls and, and not lime. I wanted this very kind of deep, uh, dark brown look. But um, what, what you need to do is just up your up your your level of um pigment much much more than you think and add much darker tones than you think you're going to need and and you can add black or brown into the mix as well to um to give it a bit more depth that's the the only way you can really do it and i find the best things to add are, are pigments um so for example iron oxide or uh, red oxide the oxides or clay. I actually get on very well. Um, I've been mixing some, got some very nice results from mixing clays with lime here and using that. So I highly recommend Atulia's course on lime for anyone looking to work with it for the first time or try a new application that you haven't experimented with before. So have a listen to the full episode to get a really in-depth overview of all the potential with lime and then start making your own plasters, paints, and cretes at home. Now the last interview that I did in this series came in just at the last minute. The team from the Cobb Research Institute reached out to me to help spread their word on their campaign to get out the vote on their new proposal to include Cobb as a legal building material in the new International Residential Building Code. Getting to speak with John, Martin, and Anthony from the CRI team was really exciting since they've been working for many years and collaborating with other organizations around the world to legitimize the very material that I fell in love with and that inspired me to study more towards a career path in natural building. For me, the possibility of having this recognized in the code could open so many doors for owner builders who aspire to build their own homes with the healthiest and most sustainable materials available to them. Despite how far this research has come, I still find that many people I speak to have never heard of Cobb and don't know what it is. So here's John Fordyce giving a definition and explaining some of the many advantages of this material. Cobb is a, a mixture of earth, sand, and straw with water, which is used to create a plastic earthen mixture that is then used to build walls. And the advantages of of that is is that the it's, it's a highly sustainable way of building and it uses locally sourced materials uh the the mixture is like adobe uh, but we don't make bricks we just uh stack it up in layers on top of a, a foundation and a stem wall to uh to create the walls in the 
the layers, it's, it's stacked up in layers and the layers are interpenetrated so that we, agree, we actually achieve a monolithic construction rather than mortar bricks like Adobe. And it's just done as a sequence of stacking up the layers, letting them dry, and then adding more layers as the building progresses in height. And as I mentioned, the, the wall is protected from ground moisture by a stem wall and a foundation, and those are uh, either concrete or stone, mortared stone, or uh, broken concrete, urbanite. And then in the, in the construction of the wall, there is uh, uh, originally it did not include reinforcing that that was provided by the straw. But now for what we've been doing, we've actually included um, actual reinforcing in the wall because it's needed for structural, I'm sorry, for seismic strength. And the rest of the building is uh, basically standard construction that is in the roof is wood and all the other elements are basically standard. And the advantages of, of Cobb is that it's low cost, low material cost, got a low car carbon footprint. The technique is very simple and it's really friendly to owner builders and it can that can remove with the owner builder, remove the labor costs, which can be as much as two thirds of the cost of a building. And the, beauty, the beauties of it is, is that it allows non-rectilinear designs um, and um, for me personally, the, uh, the, that this is a cure to what I call Cartesian madness, where, where we live in a world that is basically dominated by rectilinear construction and that affects our, th our thinking and cultural habits. And so Cobb makes, uh, makes possible a change from that. So those are the advantages. Now, though we covered a lot of ground in this interview, I was really keen to know how the information laid out in this new code proposal would change how the underground world of Cobb Builders is currently operating and what some of the major focuses on quality and standardization would be. Anthony Dente told me about some of the most important safety considerations from his perspective as a structural engineer. The prevailing knowledge on Cobb Building um, varies quite widely. Um, the in New Zealand, uh, they have uh, what we consider the most robust earth and building standards nationally recognized. They're also a seismically active country and English speaking, which is beneficial to us in the Western United States. Um, there's also been an ASTM standard written on earth and wall construction, um, which was uh, mostly followed a lot of the same guidelines as the New Zealand code. Um, and then there uh, are many, many um, some permitted but mostly unpermitted structures um, uh, ac across the Western United States um, and across the globe. Um, uh, though I, I bring up all three of those because uh, you will find every shape, size, um, format of, of wall lineup, of wall sizing, of, of window spacing. Um, having very large window uh, cavities with very thin columns of uh, straw only cob uh, is uh, not advisable. Um, this is something that you do see in practice um, and it, that, it, that is a detail that the, the code um, and 
people with current knowledge of, of testing um, and of building standards with the material would highly recommend against um, in, in any environment, um, but especially in seismic environments um, and high wind environments. Uh, foundations are another part of the structure that are often uh, built not to current code standards. Uh, I believe there's a lot of potential for research uh, on this topic. Um, it, of exploring ways to make uh, moisture uh, proof, environmentally sustaining uh, foundation uh, isolating bases for cob structures. Though currently the in the United States, the uh, prevailing uh, permittable uh, foundation system is a concrete foundation system. We work closely with uh, decrease uh, intensely uh, trying to intensely decrease carbon input into our concrete mixes here uh, at our office. Um, at the, as you know, concrete can be quite carbon intensive. And there's a, a number of other little, you know, bells and whistles, connections to roof diaphragms. Um, what, how are you anchoring to the top of your uh, wall? How is that connected uh, to your roof rafters? Uh, simple clips, just metal clips, um, connecting that, those pieces together can, can add a continuity to the building that uh, uh, keeps one side of the building uh, far more securely attached to the other side of the building. And uh, that can be really helpful, but not always done in practice. In the end, the most important takeaway for me was that getting new materials approved by the codes is a long and expensive process, and in the end it comes down to a vote from people who care enough to see these traditional building techniques revived and valued once more. I would urge anyone listening who wants to see progress in the way we build in the U.S. and around the world to visit the Cobb Research Institute's website and perhaps donate to the organization as funds are always needed to continue their campaigns and research. Now, aside from all the interviews in this series, I've got a whole library of natural building interviews from previous seasons covering all kinds of other detailed explorations of materials like light straw clay, cob, bamboo, rammed earth, earth bags, and cordwood. I've also spoken to architects, plasterers, masons, and mad scientists, so be sure to check out the website for any other topics that you want to explore in depth. Now, before wrapping up this series, I want to cover some of the bigger questions and ideas that I've been wrestling with and that many of you listeners have reached out to me about too. I think we're at an amazing and terrifying time in human history where we have unparalleled access to resources and information around the globe. We're more informed and connected than ever before, and we have access to more information than any time before now. But... Partly as a result of the technology that brought us these advantages, we're also faced with tougher challenges than we've ever had to address before. The extent of the destruction that we've committed against the natural systems that we've relied on and exploited for so long, and at such an alarming rate, is catching up to us very fast, and we increasingly see the effects of our disregard for the well-being of other life forms around us. We find ourselves at peak everything. Our rates of growth in human population are on the steep end of the exponential bell curve, while the decline of other species and the carrying capacity of our land is on the sharp end of the exponential decline. Without painting too grim of a picture or extrapolating about the effects of these and other opposing and unavoidable collisions, there are some very challenging questions that we're going to need to come to terms with before the decisions are made for us and our options for strategy dwindle into none. 
All of the growth and advancement of the last century seems to be riding on either the presumption that we can solve problems faster than we can create them, or that the problems we create are justified by the narrow definition of progress as we define it for our own species. As I'm sure anyone listening to this would agree, unlimited growth on a finite planet is a contradiction and a temporary arrangement at best. So the first question that I'll pose is, how can we as a global society operate on a model of degrowth? Is there any way to diminish in a healthy way? Can we scale down without collapse? As it pertains to this topic of regenerative and natural building, we face a projected population boom towards 10 billion people by the year 2050. Now that's only 30 years from now. That's only a little less time than I've been alive. Can things like design and building address these issues? Can natural building be adopted and scaled up to address the housing and infrastructure needs of a population of between 8 and 10 billion people? Would natural building be just as destructive of a force as industrial building if adopted at the same scale as the current building industry around the world? Obviously, this isn't just a challenge for housing and infrastructure. How do these issues apply to the food, healthcare, or water systems? I plan to explore these questions in depth in future interviews and series on this podcast, but in the meantime, I want to hear your take on this. Leave comments and feedback on the website or email me directly. I do my best to read all of them. If you know of any of the writings or other resources on these topics, or better yet, people that you would recommend that I reach out to for interviews, you can send those suggestions on topics, people to interview questions, or even just drop a line to say hi. I love getting to know people who care about these things the way that I do, and it's a great way for all of us to know that we're not alone in these challenges. If you enjoy these special episodes, be sure to let me know. This is an experiment that I'm trying out here for the first time with the thought that at the end of a series on a particular topic, I'll create a summary episode like this one with key clips and main points from the interviews in the series that sort of distill the most important information for people who don't want to go back and listen to hours of interviews again. So this is also where I'll be addressing the comments and feedback that I've been getting in order to reply to everyone at once, so that you can all benefit from the great insights that other listeners have brought to my attention and the challenges and struggles that we're all going through together. All right, that wraps things up for this week's episode. If you enjoyed this interview and want to find more like it, as well as articles and other resources, you can find the full library of previous podcasts at AbundantEdge.com. The best part is that you can search by topic rather than wading through more than 100 interviews by typing in any keyword or topic that you're looking for in the search function on the podcast page. I've spoken to experts on everything from growing your own food, building homes from natural materials, to beekeeping, vermicompost, permaculture design philosophy, and so much more. Thank you so much to those of you who've taken the time to reach out via comments and emails. Your contributions help me to make this the conversation that it's intended to be and helps me create more of the content around the topics that you're interested in. If you have any insights, advice, questions, or suggestions, be sure to send them to me at info at AbundantEdge.com, and I'll look forward to being in touch. New episodes come out every Friday like clockwork, so I'll catch you on next week's show.